0: Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Aaron Khanna joins us from Seattle, in the United States. Aaron is the CEO and co founder of Archera. Aaron Khanna, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. It's great to meet you. So I know that we're in the middle of an AWS outage that you just alerted me, and we can get into all the fun challenges that companies deal with with that sort of scenario. But as you reflect on your experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software?
1: Yeah, so I think there's three things that I look for. Uh, One is great functional decomposition. Two is brevity. I think this is actually maybe the most important one. And then three is simple but high-coverage tests. I think tests that are too complicated often you know, miss the point of, of what a test is supposed to be from a maintenance perspective. Yeah, I think those are those are sort of the three top-level ones. I'm happy to, to dig into them and wax poetic about any one of them. But I've written a lot of software from open source to my own little projects to team projects and, and even building you know, code bases over years and years, um, launching products in places like AWS or startup i'm uh running right now archera and you know in all of those cases uh you can never say make the code more concise and more simple enough you can never say add more tests that are simple and covering these you know functional units enough and you can never say hey you know why are these things together you should break them out um, enough is what i've found because i think there's a lot of inertia in writing code and well-maintained code is code that's been thought about more than once
0: you know, you mentioned, uh, kind of expand on that idea around brevity. There's It's an interesting thing where I, I, I forget where the phrase or the, the quote comes from. It's like, I would have written, this, this would be shorter if I had more time kind of thing. Do you feel like that same sort of thing applies to code? And at what point do you feel like brevity becomes counterintuitive if, it, say, I'm just making an assumption here, if you get too terse or like where's that fine balance between brevity and readability and a bunch of single letter variables in a code base? Yeah. So I think
1: brevity is not measured in characters. Brevity is really measured in the succinctness of ideas. So it means write long enough comments, use long enough variable names to be descriptive. The code should almost read as human readable, but make ideas succinct. And actually it it kind of dovetails with the functional decomposition. If you decompose things correctly, you're not reusing a lot. And so your code should naturally be shorter. And if there is a, you know, an all too clever way to do something, usually it takes more to describe it. So the code sort of naturally becomes longer, even if it would be short with, you know, single, single character variable names. Uh, so I find that it, it almost balances out, but I think, in production code and code that is written under deadlines, what you see is sort of the opposite. To your point, brevity is the soul of wit, but you see people copying and pasting and rewriting. And you know I'm, I'm sure you've seen this in, in software that you've maintained. And that's, that's the inertia. That's the norm. So I think there's, a, there's obviously limits on both sides, but I think the limit that's being hit is very rarely on the side of it is too short and too complex because it's so short or, you know.
0: You share that scenario where, Someone's under a tight timeline and they need to replicate, let's say, a fair amount of what something else in an application does, but it's like a different concept in some ways. And there's, so there's a, well, how am I going to refactor this when I maybe I'm still learning because not everybody's started and written every piece of code that's in an application. So like, this seems to be working. I need to do something similar over here. When not you invoke the uh, maybe i prematurely copy pasted that line of code or that that file of code and you start ch- changing some variable names i was i was pairing with uh with the junior developer recently who had done this and i was like t- i was like oh wow this is a pretty impressive test case you have here and i was like oh, i didn't know that you were feeling that comfortable it's like t- like well i actually copied like the file and then the test for that file and changed all the names and i was like oh okay that's 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 an approach and that's not a bad thing necessarily but it's like well we need to get this out to the door in the next 24 hours. Do I go push, like, whoa, 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 let's hold off and let's go back and try refactoring? Or do we like, cool, let's get this shipped out if it seems to be working and we can come back and refactor this later. How do teams navigate that sort of challenge? Do you have any sort of ethos there that you kind of employ with your team? Yeah, I actually think
1: that I'm not an absolutist about this. Uh, And the question that you ask is the interminable question of when it's okay to take on debt. Because fundamentally, I think that, you know story that you gave is an example of taking on tech debt fundamentally right when you're not refactoring you're making it harder for someone down the line to maintain it because if there's a bug in that first test how will they know the second test is actually forked from that first test so you know it, it is quite literally that is the foundation of technical debt you had just written yourself a uh, a note saying i owe you in the future And I think there are great reasons, particularly because I'm a CEO now and not a CTO from a business perspective to say, yeah, let's go and drive this and go in debt right now, because I know the returns are so great in the near term, we'll be able to pay it off down the road. And I think that is not just a technical question, right? It's a business question as well, um, because you're taking away engineering hours from the future.
0: Another thing about that specific scenario is I work in consulting, and so we work on a lot of other projects that come to us. And so I didn't know that that was copy and pasted from another area. If they hadn't said it when we were doing like a, we were pairing online and talking to the PR, because it was a big enough thing. I'm like, I feel like we should at least talk through it before I give you a thumbs up on this. Because it's like, great, you have a bunch of tests, seems to be working. Oh, some context, like this, a lot of this was copy and pasted. Oh, Interesting. Does your team have conversations around when that sort of those decisions are being made? Or do you feel like it's easy to detect those things, or do you think that happens a lot and people just don't know it? Not like there's anything wrong with copy and pasting and making some changes? I mean, I think it's a little bit of all of the above, right? It it depends on
1: where in the code base, you know, what the the developers and the maturity of the developers kind of around the table when they're doing PR reviews looks like. Uh there's a lot of variance there. And I think that you know, part of it is having the discipline to know when something is more of a one-way, I mean, everything's technically a two-way door, but there are some changes that are more one-way doors than others. So changes to a data model in a database that affects a ton of downstream applications, changes in a Terraform template, and, you know, this is common resources that everyone's running their ETL pipelines on. These are much needier changes than going and changing kind of a React component that might have been copied and pasted in the UX is a little bit different. Uh, obviously, there's a hierarchy of bad, right? Having the site go down bad, showing bad data to the customer is very bad. You know, having a UX bug, not as bad. So I think it's a function of marrying, you know, where is that practice happening? Um, and it's going to happen regardless of, you know, where in the stack, but is it deep enough in the stack? And does it have so many downstream impacts on the code and on the business such that, you need to be extra careful. You should have the most senior people with the most context reviewing those changes.
0: I got some, some good advice there. You've mentioned technical debt and do you, it sounds like you use that maybe in a day-to-day basis. Do you feel like there's a misconception about what technical debt is that you've seen, or you might've had at one point point? Or are like, Oh, I, you might've used that metaphor to describe some code at one point that would you, do you feel like you, the people use it in the wrong way sometimes? It's it's really weird,
1: because it's almost like, uh, you know, that quote from, I think it was like the 70s on pornography, I know it when I'll see it, uh, that Senator gave, it's kind of like that with technical debt. I think a lot of things can be described in a way as technical debt. I mean, my company exists to help people clean up a form of technical debt, which is waste in their cloud spend. You can even view that under the umbrella of technical debt, because all infrastructure now and Uh, provisioning is being defined by coders in code. So I think, you know, there is a very small aperture, test coverage or something like that under which you could define it, or very broad aperture. Anything defined by a developer's code kind of rolls into technical debt. And I think it probably changes between companies depending on, you know, what is most relevant for the business. It's just, it's hard, right? It's one of those things, like I said, I, I know it when I see it. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it very context
0: dependent i realized as i was asking that question i was kind of like leading towards something that i feel that i've witnessed a lot and so i apologize to the audience for trying to steer you in a direction that i wanted to hear you say some answer to that question but it was more around the uh one of the things that i've noticed over the years is that there's a kind of these cycles or evolution of a developer going through a career where they get to a certain level of confidence in their ability that they start being maybe judgmental about how things were done in the past. Whether it be themselves or their former teammates or some other company that built it or something. And like, oh, that's technical debt because it's like running on an old version of something or it's not the way I would have done it. Would you consider that technical debt or is that something different? Yeah, and this is why it's so hard
1: to define. But I think, you know, that is not technical debt until maybe it is, right? So we work a lot in cloud infrastructure, uh, migrations, people moving to the cloud, infrastructure as a service, running VMs. And then someone comes along and says, hey, that's all tech debt. This should all be on Lambda. This should all be containerized. This should all be serverless. And I think there is, you know, it's almost like a, a market trend happening where, yeah, no, that's, that's nonsense. Why would we re-architect everything? And then the market starts to move and then more stuff gets built for serverless. It becomes more useful. It becomes more cost effective. Um, and and the, the wheel starts to move enough where, then you can look at just the cost delta of running something on an infrastructure service versus serverless and you know, having best practices, obviously, to manage both of those and say, hey, maybe given this delta that's emerged over the last five years as this product has gotten really mature, the guy who was yelling and screaming about this four years ago is actually right. This is now characterized as technical debt. So I think it's not just a you know look at the code base and tell me how it should be different, but what is the actual impact? And that impact can change over time. as The technologies, the techniques, mature. But you want to stay away from shiny new object. Hey, like, you know, why are we on React? View looks so much better, right? Why are we on View? Flutter looks so much better. You're going to get caught in that treadmill, and it doesn't really create a lot of business impact.
0: Until it does. Until one of them gets really, you know, 10x better than the others. Let's take a moment to plug your product, uh, Archera. So for those, like what sort of problems is your, you mentioned like cloud-based services, like helping assess costs and things like that. Can you dig into it a little bit? Because I, I know that there's a lot of people out there now that are using code to generate systems and services and not everybody in under, like, I don't know how often people go clean those up, <laughs> right. Or under, if it's overutilized or you underutilized, with the, you know just hitting some, someone's credit card most likely somewhere, right? Yeah, and that's, that's the hard part about
1: cloud. I was actually, you know, my background is I was early in Azure, back when it was Windows Azure, they didn't even let us offer Linux. You know, I was actually at AWS launching SageMaker and a number of their managed machine learning products and, you know, the hosted GPUs and all of, all of those services. And we grew that team from like eight to 800 people and really saw a lot of aspects of how costs were managed amongst customers, how there was this massive sort of uh, Cambrian explosion of billing models, even within AWS, amongst all of the different services. Uh, and then just how difficult it was for customers to you know, not only understand why they were billed yesterday and who, who billed them. And I think at the time I was at AWS, there were tools that did a, a reasonably good job of this, uh, even though they were very expensive, but where the real gap was and where we saw sort of the best performing organizations that could actually dedicate a team of five people to build an in-house, Snowflake solution to this, you know, def- really kind of break away from the pack is in the ability to forecast and automate management and then really de-risk through negotiations with their vendors, the spend for the primitives that they're consuming from AWS. It's not just about visibility. It's about having such a high degree of predictability where you can start to automate things like million dollar purchases, you know, every single month, and then essentially get insurance against that from the cloud vendor, given your scale. And we wanted to take that code that was very differentiated that Netflix wrote, that Spotify wrote, that Airbnb wrote in house, um, and all those different data pipelines across Azure, AWS, every single service that, again, very difficult to maintain. We've had to build a lot of maintenance kind of standards, even into our process, to make sure that data is coming across in a consistent, kind of unified manner. We wanted to make sure no one else had to go write another freaking pipeline to do this for the marginal cloud vendor. And we want to essentially give that out as a service. We want to take visibility, give that away for free. No one has to write these data pipelines anymore. Here are our APIs, go plug it in and take all of your kind of unified and normalized cost data from any app that you're using from Kubernetes to Snowflake to Azure AWS services for free. And then we'll help you automate and de-risk it with software in a way that you know really only the big guys who could build these Snowflake solutions before were able to. Yeah,
0: I haven't personally needed to deal with anything on that sort of scale so it's like so curious about that space of being like wow like there could be a lot of under you like systems out there that are were spun up for one you know at one point and just sitting idle waiting for the next request and it may never come right and like I've also worked with clients that are dealing with challenges They're like well I don't really know what we're paying for like is any of this still use use anymore and trying to like better understand that so is this something like our helps? you can plug in or is it like, do you just like, let's using AWS as an example, is it kind of something you plug in and connect it with AWS somehow and then you're able to kind of like pull out some details? We plug in, connect through kind of the existing
1: uh, identity and access management system with AWS, Azure, Google, Suck-In, all of the, um, at least a year of historical usage um, uh, utilization data as well. And then we'll actually pull in the billing side. So any special contracts with the vendors, commitments and, you know, everything on the financial side of the book as well, we'll marry that in a software platform. And essentially for free, we'll show you what your utilization is, who's spending what, and where there are sort of gaps to optimize. And where we try and help customers is then saying, okay, now I know this is underutilized. Let's actually schedule when that needs to be shut off, what the migration looks like. Uh, Let me then buy commitments to a reasonable degree against that plan and then what we do, which is actually very unique is because we give customers so much more predictability in their future spend, which is really the differentiator over what existed in the market, which is very much backwards looking, is we have such high confidence that we sell insurance against those commitment plans. So if you know you don't migrate that database in time or you don't move from IAS to serverless, we'll actually either you know, buy back the commitment or we'll let you keep the commitment longer. And you can have like a three-month commitment with us, for example, that you can never get under AWS or Azure. Uh, and that's just a function of having so much more predictability that we can give to customers.
0: I'm getting into the weeds a little bit. Uh, I'm curious about this, uh, is, are you now like the billing funnel for those people or are they direct, still billing directly through AWS or something? They still bill in the AWS case
1: through AWS. AWS actually has a RI marketplace where they can trade these commitments amongst each other Uh, And what we do is we essentially guarantee to be the market maker for them in that marketplace. So if they need to unload that commitment at any time, you know, even after a month, we actually take that back from them, hold it on our books. And then when we have another customer who needs it, we'll move it over to them. And that essentially comes from the fact that we're helping them automate this stuff. So we don't have to wait for someone to go click a button. We actually have high certainty on when the demand is coming and then the fact that we just have much better predictability for customers—we're really built around this idea of forecasting and, and making those forecasts come true.
0: <laughs> nice. Well, thanks for get, providing a um, kind of an overview of that. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for our audience. Digging back a little bit into some coding-related topics, you know, we talked about technical debt. How does your team go about managing prioritizing? Technical debt task is that something that people carry around in their head? Does it live on a board somewhere? Is it a spreadsheet somewhere? Like we recently became a big, uh, you know, confluence shop,
1: so our new VP of engineering has put in uh, some awesome processes in Jira, and a lot of the prioritization really comes from uh, the bug hierarchy, essentially, or the tech debt hierarchy that we've put together in Jira, and it really kind of follows the, you know, the fundamental tenets of what we're trying to do for customers. You know, one, we want the service to be online and available. Two, we want the data to be correct. So you know, maintaining all these data pipelines is an incredibly you know, difficult task, but it's one that we prioritize because we want to make sure that you know, every marginal service is accounted for. So we have a ton of monitoring, a ton of sort of triage processes that we've built just around that. Because you know, while AWS doesn't change APIs for spinning up and down infrastructure that often, they change the billing constantly. And that's that's a big you know big challenge And again, we want to take on and give away even for free in our free tier so other customers never have to deal with going and building this maintenance nightmare to uh, pull in all and normalize all of their cloud costs.
0: So your uh, your team is using Jira and Confluence. And so is it something like what's what is the if you're a developer on your team right now, what is their expect, what's the expectation of them to track something if they see something? Is it like raise a ticket, throw it in a Confluence? Type of thing what's or or discuss it at a meeting or pitch it somewhere yeah
1: we we have um generally weekly kind of open session meetings where we can talk about this stuff. generally, more senior folks will just cut the tickets and uh, we do triage uh every kind of two weeks along with our two week sprints. Everything sort of aligns on that cadence of of the two week sprint. Uh, we have ad hoc discussions, so to speak, or open discussions every week and then uh we'll have kind of the final prioritization and assignment and then there's some ways to short circuit that so if we prioritize something as p0 or p1 it'll get looked at in 24 or 48 hours so there's some you know short circuits just for large customers folks that we need to get back to or we have a demo with in you know a few hours it's broken but generally we try and keep everything into the framework of of the two-week sprint where we can Um, We've had to develop mechanisms like a bug czar rotating and things like that to deal with other sort of fires that crop up. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1000 in the mail just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com/referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com/referrals.
0: Thanks. Do you find yourself more on the side of team rewrite or team refactor?
1: I think probably team refactor. I I think there's a lot to be, I mean, it depends, right? These are all very contextual, but I think generally the, especially if the author is still there and maintaining the original author is still there and maintaining the software refactoring, I think can make a lot more sense, especially if it's someone else doing the refactoring because keeping the common components, having two people who can maintain it instead of one is is generally the benefit, uh, at least from a kind of management perspective.
0: When do you think it makes sense to go through that process of a of a say a, a larger rewrite? Yeah. Where I've seen it make the most sense
1: is when we are kind of offering a net new product essentially to a customer, and it requires um, really going in and like breaking something out fundamentally uh, from from the core code. It's going be largely on the front end, which is where we've done this most recently. We've had to offer a new automation product that weaves into everything else. And we have to rewrite a big chunk of the front end for that. Uh, But also on the back end, you know, we're going through something right now where we're actually trying to take all those pipelines I was talking about and make them open source uh, for for kind of everyone to come in and contribute to. Again, we don't want anyone to have to maintain, you know, all the marginal billing pipelines. Trust me, they break every single day. um, And everyone who is at scale and has to deal with like billing from 10 15 platforms is dealing with this nightmare. So it's something like that that we basically have to go to for re rewrite around the kind of core data models for to make sure they're sanitized and ready to go and um, extract. So I think there are really kind of business-led and product-led reasons to go and make that big investment.
0: I'm curious about that uh, going down the open source path. Do you have any open source projects already that the organization's released? And so is this something that you've... And I know a lot of companies will put stuff out there open source it and so it's visible and then occasionally might get people to participate in contributing back to it do you feel like that's more of a, a scenario like do you have much success on actually recruiting external people that are not employees of Archera to participate in these things or is it more of a being open like working in the public eye a little bit more as part of like the, the goal there so I mean
1: we are I think a given our, our developer base, a lot of them actually have come from the open source world. Like we've had some contributors to SUSE, we have contributors to Argo, and we actually kind of engage actively in the community. We have an open source kind of Kubernetes monitoring tool that we collaborate with some other folks on. But again, I don't think we have the scale of having a, a, a big you know CNCF project that we exclusively manage and have a lot of people contribute to. But what we do have, I think, uniquely is we have large customers with teams that they were going to build out to do this, build this anyways, you know, folks like 40 of down up here in Seattle, a big fortune 500 company with like, I think probably eight different organizations with their own CTOs and developers underneath them. And it's, you know, folks like that where the developers would be interested in coming in and actually contributing to something like this. So I think within our customer base, there's interest. Uh, and then even within the kind of broader, I think, FinOps community, which is a new thing that's sort of emerging, but we've talked to folks who manage, you know, very large cloud spends for top hundred AWS customers, who just don't want to build a lot of this stuff themselves. Um, and, you know, while I can't say, hey, it's going to be super successful, I can say we have people who will work with it, uh, with us on it, maybe not at the scale of, uh, you know, where Argo is now, for example, but I think there's good buy-in from a slightly different cohort of folks.
0: Yeah, I hadn't heard uh, FinOps used yet, so that's that's interesting. Uh, That's a whole thing. It's a problem, right, for the the, in the industry. And so, big picture, how like how long have you how many how many approximately how many years have you been part of this industry now? So about three years, and you know I think FinOps is still very
1: new, right? Some people like I think Nike has a FinOps team, for example, Um, and obviously like Netflix and Spotify have specific financial operations teams, they call them different things like capacity planning sometimes, but generally, they they take that same function. I think it's a problem that has emerged really at the kind of larger end of the market in terms of the scale of usage. But it's, it's really kind of trickling down pretty quickly. I think we see a lot of startups with, you know, a few hundred people now looking to bring in FinOps, because at the end of the day, going from what I think I was trying to change in the industry before, which is a visibility-based approach to one that's about prediction and automation, saves you so much money on a multi-million dollar bill that a FinOps team pays for itself. And more businesses are starting to realize this just from an ROI perspective, which is kind of weirdly why we see some of these teams reporting into the office of the CFO and not the CIO. But I think the you know l justification makes sense. But from an operational standpoint, the ability to have you know, as an additional way to monitor your infrastructure, which is essentially what the spend monitoring is, actually I think has benefits from a maintainability perspective. You know, things like recursive lambdas are caught uniquely by, you know, spend monitoring tools as the cost just
0: goes to the moon and you know it is fundamentally a function of the software that's being written. You know, I'm curious about you know your team's own delivery. You talked a little bit about their how they manage tasks and technical debt and bugs, things like that, working on sprints, are there other metrics that your team uses to kind of they're able to keep an eye on when, in terms of like the health of your software delivery cycle?
1: Yeah, so I'd say one of the big things is um, just having monitoring in place, particularly I think they're calling it observability stack now, right? Um, but monitoring logs, uh, monitoring metrics from the underlying infrastructure, um, and then kind of traces when things break. And there's a ton of tools out there uh, that do this for you. But uh, those three are kind of key and particularly silencing stuff that's happening in irrelevant systems. You have to configure it correctly, right? And then really raising the alarm bells, you know, automatically creating, creating a P0 ticket in the JIRA system when it's something that happens in a critical system. So I was talking about our data pipelines earlier, you know, when there's a trace back that fails there. That is immediately a P zero ticket because we could be sending incorrect cost information to customers. Uh, if the cache goes down and the the metrics on that particular set of boxes go down, all right, that's a P zero. But you know, if we see some front end error or something goes blank in the React, all right, that's maybe a P two. We'll look at it in a few weeks. But this is not uh, a huge issue, right? Often the customer is like, "Oh, the UX is broken. Oh, okay, great, just reload it and it's fine." So. I think having that hierarchy baked into how you tool your observability is important. Just slapping observability in place will just lead to everything being silenced without, you know, that thoughtfulness about what's alerting and, and where it's being alerted to.
0: Are there also any metrics you use to track like just the team health at all in terms of whether that be their code contributions or how much they're getting through in like say a sprint or the time to deploy things or how long the CI takes to run and things like that?
1: Yeah, we, we've gone through a few iterations of this and I'll probably kind of be honest in saying this is where we're likely the least mature. But what we've been trying to do is get very tight on costing. If we're able to cost things correctly and you hit those um, milestones, um, either hit or exceed them, then we're doing really well. And I think this is something that we're still trying to get dialed in. But things like planning poker have sort of helped build that muscle in the team where everyone goes around and estimates, uh, you know, there's a little slack bot for this now, I think makes it really easy, estimates how long a task should take. And then, you know, whoever is running the scrum or the sprint uh, then averages it or uh, puts their own sort of spin on the estimate and gets the person assigned to agree. You know, those exercises are really helpful in getting alignment and starting to dial in this muscle. But I think once you're at a point where you have a really good uh, system around delivery, and then the other thing is how many bugs are being created, and if a bug is created once and it is systemic, is it being fixed that first time? So systemic bugs are something that I've gotten really tight on as well.
0: That's interesting. The, uh, similar to you're talking about you know, your product there and helping organizations understand their costs and predicting things, Do you feel like it's easier to forecast and plan for infrastructure than it is over like what human output could be look to look like and trying to apply similar? I was asking the question because I know that it's, it's a challenge for a lot of teams. They're like, well, don't ask me to estimate because I'm not good at estimating. And so teams just give up on it. But at the other end, you're like, how do you as a business owner prioritize things when you don't really have a good sense of like, is it worth the investment in the first place?
1: Uh, so I mean, there's sort of two different things, and I think this is this is really an important question, right? In the cost realm, for better or worse, because all infrastructure is code now, and it's all based on some kind of linear combination of the architecture and the code being deployed, the code defining the deployment and the usage, especially with now kind of serverless and pay-as-you-go models that scale up with demand. Uh, it's it's a very complicated problem, right? And it's really coming back down to having humans estimate. And what that really means for us is obviously in our planning poker, we want to dial that in and build that muscle in our team. But most humans are just like, look, you know, here's maybe the range, one month to 12 months, it'll be up. And we wanted to make a system that was robust to that. This is why we even developed this insurance model. We want to be able to say, look, I don't know if it's going to be done in a quarter and two quarters and three quarters. Great. How about you commit to three months here? And if it's still not done, you can keep that commitment. And if it gets done after five months or six months, great, sell it back to us. So we wanted to give more flexibility to the people who are doing the planning and take into account the fact that you don't know if the thing is going to be up for exactly a year, and it probably won't be up for exactly a year. So there's, I, I think there's ways that in a product sense, we've tried to innovate around that. But that is a fundamental problem of getting humans to estimate stuff. And there's no getting around that. There's no solution, right? For, especially when there's multiple people trying to estimate, business people trying to figure out how many you know, new users you're going to get. And the engineer is trying to figure out, well, what is the impact of this right sizing or re-architecture activity actually? And when will that happen?
0: I'm always thinking around how, you know, that that, a little bit of pushback from people in the industry about not wanting to work on estimates, but know, as you're saying, like, it's important to have some gauge before you give a thumbs up on proceeding with something, especially if you say, if it's not coming from the product owners or from the, I'm air quoting uh, the business side of things and it's like, oh, technical debt type issues and like, well, this could take X to Y sprints, weeks, months, however your team's doing that story points. You need that information to help prioritize those things sometimes. Otherwise, we don't want to just send people down a rabbit hole and be like, just get it done and then, you know, we'll loop you in on what we've done in the meantime, you know, the three months pass because you decided to go down that rabbit hole by yourself or whatever. Do you find that there's some good, outside of the planning poker, are there any other Things that your team is feeling, they're self-regulating that, or do you find it's actually not that difficult to push back on that, or the team pushes back on themselves a little bit? Yeah, I think
1: the, I mean, with the planning poker, it's it's almost by by crowdsourced team consensus to some degree. So I think anything that's like completely aberrant gets gets pushed back on uh, naturally, or people just don't propose it. I and mean, I think the cadence also helps. Having a two week sprint cadence and saying, look, we're having a demo day at the end of this, like. You know even if it's an internal thing like we need to have some deliverable and scope it in that way so we're actually you know taking chunks out of this cake and and not trying to swallow the whole thing in one very long setting and, and i think that's part of just the structure and then the norms you set up in the team
0: we'll be back with our interview with aaron in just a moment hi it's me robbie i wanted to take a quick moment just to say thank you for listening to me and If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone that I should interview on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and make your kicks. And now, let's get back to our interview with Aaron Kana. So a couple of kind of last questions here and one I like to ask everybody comes on. And so like the scenario... Say someone listening right now, they're on a team and they might've been raising some concerns about some technical debt, things that they feel like are having an impact on their ability to ship things. But they've asked or they feel like they've advocated for it a few times, but kind of got pushed back a little bit and like, not right now, a few times, and are now just translating that in their head to never. So I will stop asking. What advice could you offer to them on how to start taking some action now versus kind of sitting on that? Yeah, I I mean, I think,
1: obviously, it depends on the organization and and where they are, because maybe, uh, in some cases, you know, they do need to move fast and and build other things from a business perspective versus focus on maintaining uh, a core system. But I would say that, particularly with technical debt, particularly with cleaning it up, there is a really hard and fast case to be made, just even looking at historical data and bugs and maintenance on Future develop, developer velocity. So, if you're in a place where you know the thing does need to be maintained, it is costing a lot. From a, you, know, you can even if you're doing story points or um, scoping out bugs and doing planning poker. You can literally add up the number of hours that the debt is costing. Project that forward and say, look, you know, this is how many hours this investment of time upfront can save. There's a business case for this, assuming we're going to still be using this system or relying on this system in the future. Obviously, for like core infrastructure systems, core databases, it always makes a lot more sense to fix it now versus let it break a ton of stuff downstream uh, in the future. So I think having a hard numbers-based case and coming with a business case to the table is, at least in my opinion, being a manager, the easiest way to get buy-in and move resources.
0: Do you hear that, everybody? Um, need to have some estimates. Do you feel like it's helpful for the team to propose like if you're working through that story point planning poker of like okay it's gonna could potentially be this but if we're still having to deal with this other thing it's actually more likely to be this higher story point if we can do this other thing that will over time start to sell some of that or reduce the the cost to to deliver something in this area of the application or software
1: i mean if you want to be even really pedantic about it you can say hey this is one story point but actually working through and like not having to refactor that like not refactoring this but like Having to just understand this from a technical debt perspective, you know, it's another story point right there. Break it out is just technical debt payoff, and you can have the team even quantify it. That's very extreme, but I think the idea is if you make the point clear what percentage of the work is actually going to paying down your tech debt, uh, is going into understanding or making kind of occult changes in a spaghetti system, it becomes really clear to management really quickly.
0: Have you ever seen a scenario where developers start to sneak in their technical debt improvements, refactoring inside of requests coming from the, the product owners? Really great developers, yes, but you know a lot of people
1: will just do what is scoped to them, right? And I think you know people who have a high degree of understanding, I think first and foremost, and then kind of ownership over those pieces of the product, because they know they're going to be working on that thing in the future are often the ones who will go and make those changes. And um, you know, with a change to add feature XYZ, we'll actually go and do a database uh, refactor, put a new index on it and kind of do the legwork behind the scenes. I actually found the best way to do that in a team is to have people own parts of the product long-term because then you know it's them in the future who they're helping out by going and making those changes in addition to everyone else who might touch that piece of the, uh, the code base.
0: I'm always thinking about how some of the conversations I have with developers over the years where there's a, or even if you talk to product owners in particular, they'll be like, well, okay, we have this technical debt that the team's accumulated. And then the the product owner is kind of feeling like, I didn't ask you to make a mess of the code base or to cut a bunch of shortcuts in the, in your, you know, in your, uh, in the software as we've approached things over the years. So there kind of ends up being this weird, like, well, the product team isn't kind of giving me permission to work on this stuff yet. They've never explicitly said, don't take care of this stuff either. And so it becomes this kind of like finger pointing type of problem. Have you experienced much of that at all? Well, I have definitely seen that happen
1: before. Uh, you know, not my problem sort of mentality. I actually think it, it's often the case that, that that's just a function of like gaps being left in how management assigns things. I think it starts with good architecture, with clear boundaries, with clear sort of delineation of who owns what. That shouldn't be a problem and if that comes up then you just have to update your model of who owns what and i think that that's just the proactive job of whoever the engineering manager is for that product or project uh, to, to go and define and work with his architect or principal engineer or whoever her architect or, or principal engineer I, I think they have a time devops engineers sometimes manage this as well to really make that definition clear and evolve that definition um, because that's just the early signs of a broader team dysfunction that could happen if things are left to just sort of be thrown up in the air and caught by whoever's willing to catch it.
0: Yeah. That's a uh, kind of touching a little bit on like the, what's the concept of what's your team's definition of done for something, right? It's like this, what are the things you're, you're trying to account for when you deliver something? Is it just the feature does what you said it does or did you, does the, Does that item in JIRA also, the issue in JIRA also supposed to encompass, and how does this impact what's closely, you know, around, surrounding it, and am I responsible for that as well? And I think that seems like a team-based decision to figure out, but as you said, maybe more experienced developers or really good developers start to figure out that that is part of what needs to happen as well, but at the same time, I can understand people going down the path of being, you know, new in this industry or as a software developer and be like, well, I got to, you know, take the order, and I'm going to give you exactly what the order is up, but that wasn't in the scope. So who's responsible for managing the the scope, I suppose becomes another thing within that, that particular team there.
1: Yeah. And that's why planning poker is never like the most, uh, you know, high fidelity activity because sometimes you get into the code base and you discover that X, Y, Z needs to be refactored for this to really work. And, you know, we try and limit scope creep to some degree by having customer verifiable outcomes for a lot of the, Kind of work in features. So uh, it's being driven by, you know, custom feature request or a customer, you know, pain or, or issue in the platform. Um, that's kind of a hard number that needs to be fixed or a hard error that needs to be fixed. So it's things like that, that I think, you know, scoping can help. But again, you're never going to remove this idea that someone gets down into the, you know, into the guts of the system and discovers you know, pulls on a thread and the whole sweater comes apart, so to speak like that will always happen. You could just you know, minimize how, that, how frequently that happens by having good maintainable code and, and processes and systems that adapt even with changing estimates.
0: Thank you for that answer. I know that the audience will appreciate hearing that and hopefully everybody can do a little bit of self-reflecting on how they're approaching these things or thinking about scope or who they should be asking those questions to within their team. Last few quick questions for you. Is there a non-software, non technical book that you find yourself recommending to peers on a regular
1: basis? Oh, very interesting. I think from a software perspective, the mythical man month that just has a lot of parallels to software development, even though it's not per se super technical. Um, and, and I've definitely recommended that a lot. Uh, you know, I think recently a lot of kind of great business books have come out, um, Particularly, I was just reading one that I've been recommending from Frank Slootman, who runs Snowflake now. Uh, He was at ServiceNow before. uh, It's called Amp It Up. And I think from just a business perspective and from a general sort of like team leadership perspective, it was really good. How do you rally a team? How do you set really high expectations? Um, And I think it applies. Obviously, it's written from a high level business perspective, but it applies in a lot of ways to kind of fast moving engineering teams.
0: Nice. I hadn't heard that one before. So I'm definitely, I'll am definitely include links to those both in the show notes for everybody. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminating about software development online? <laughs> well, uh, most folks can find me on Twitter at
1: A-R-A-N-K-H-A-N-N-A. And if you're interested in finding out more about what we do at Archera and how we could potentially help you with cloud spend challenges, uh, you can find us at A-R-C-H-E-R-A dot A-I, Archera dot A-I.
0: Well, excellent. It's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Aaron. Thank you so much for talking shop. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me, Ravi, and hopefully we get to meet again soon.